Don't turn it off now. You need this stuff. Tampa Bay's Tantalk Radio Network. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make their bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. I mean, first impression is just it looks out of this world. Um, it's beautiful. I mean, it's the most beautiful car I've ever seen. Getting to race the Ford GT is a dream come true. We're united. We have one goal. That is to win with Ford. Hi, I'm Ryan Briscoe. Driver for Ford Performance Chip Ganassi Racing. My name's Joey Hand, and I drive for Ford Performance Chip Ganassi Racing. I'm Richard Westbrook, and I drive for Ford Performance Chip Ganassi Racing. Hi, I'm Dirk Müller, and driving Ford Performance Chip Ganassi Racing. I'm broadcasting. Hi, everybody. This is David Hobbs, racing driver and speed commentator, and you're listening to Nostalgia Radio and Cars.
Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Video Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google TanTalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, be sure and check out our podcast page on our website, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Bobby, good evening. How are you? Why don't you go ahead and do the social media announcements? We are on Facebook and LinkedIn at Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we are on Twitter, Periscope at NRC on Air. How about that? Okay. Let's see what else we got going on. Well, anyway, hey, uh, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I think I said that a minute ago. So we got an exciting show for you tonight. We have a very, very important and significant guest, a return alumni guest coming on the show a little bit later, because we're going to be talking about some of the races that just took place the past couple of weeks. We had the uh, outstanding and amazing 24-hour Le Mans. Ford technically did a repeat of 1966 when they won 50 years ago. Although they won overall one, two, three at Le Mans back in 1966, this time Ford won their class. So as far as I'm concerned, it's the first place win, kind of like uh, 50 years later. So it was excellent. Although the highlight of the race really was, it was a, a pretty much a showdown between Porsche, Toyota, Nissan. Okay, which is almost kind of like a repeat. If you think about it, in the early 90s, Porsche pretty much dominated everything. Ferrari was strong. Uh, there was a number of other cars that raced, but Nissan and Toyota were pretty strong. Nissan predominantly back in the 90s. So here it is, you know, almost 30 years later, and or 25 years later, and you've got Nissan and Toyota very, very, very strong. And the cars are hybrids, okay? Porsche, Audi, very, very strong. And that's basically an LMP1 and LMP2 classes. That's uh, LMP stands for Le Mans prototype, okay? And there's a little, and there are different variations between LMP1 and LMP2. In fact, our guest who's going to be on in a little bit, he'll go ahead and uh, break that down for us. And um, so at the very last, I mean, we're talking three minutes of the race, the Toyota just started to go really, really slow and just about stopped. And Porsche... Just went right past him. And it was on the lap before the last lap. Okay. Or basically one lap to go. And uh, Porsche took an overall win. I mean, it was amazing. So now having said that, Porsche was pretty much dominant during a major portion of the race. They did have some issues in the pits. The cars are unbelievable. These things are so high tech, so sophisticated. They don't even look like cars anymore. They pretty much look like spaceships going down the road. Kind of like the Indy cars. I will say this. I'm not a big Indy car fan. I like the older Indy cars. We've had some notable guests on our show. We've had Parnella Jones. We've had uh, Bobby Unser and more contemporary guys like Danny Sullivan. And uh, we've had some pretty interesting guys on our show. Mario Andretti, obviously, who raced IndyCar for a long time, all through like three generations, basically. And uh, so the cars back in the early late 50s, early 60s, pretty much looked kind of cool and wicked. And you had to be a man back then to drive a car. There was no technology. There was some, but not to the extent that they have today. And, of course, in the 80s, cars got more sophisticated, still relatively open-wheel cars. But I think what happened here a couple of years ago after the Dan Weldon incident, they changed the body on the cars because there's something that's notorious in IndyCar or slash open car racing is when you do a little wheel-to-wheel action, you have a tendency, if any of you guys have ever driven go-karts, you know what I'm talking about, where you hook another guy's wheel, you get between them, you run over them, and it'll launch the car. Okay, so now the way the cars are designed, the new Indy cars, I think they did this two years ago because when we were down at the St. Pete Grand Prix when they introduced that particular year, whatever that was, they introduced the new bodywork with uh, improved uh, aerodynamics and obviously better handling. Kind of looks cool and then uh, looks like they moved into the modern age. Still, the bodywork is pretty cool. It trudes out beyond the wheels, so it's very difficult to kind of interlock the wheels. You know, I mean, you still, you know, if you hit somebody, you can still launch them because you can climb the bodywork. But nonetheless, uh, they're uh, they're new and they're and they and they have a little bit more of a kind of a really really contemporary kind of a you know a spaceship look to them. Kind of the Formula One cars still look pretty much like a Formula One car. If you put the car side by side, a Formula One car is smaller than an Indy car, and Indy car is bigger. Hopefully, I said that right because uh, our guest that's coming on a little bit later, who has raced a number of cars in various classes, I'm not sure if he raced Indy. I do know he did race Formula One maybe one time, and uh, and of course, you've, if you tune into the show on a regular basis, you know that we have a lot of well-known guests that come on our show, and pretty much all of them aspire to Formula One. Formula One is probably the, in terms of pecking order, the pinnacle of racing. 
And, uh, and unfortunately, last year I was able to go to CODA, which is the Circuits of the Americas, which is the Formula One race in Austin, Texas. Unbelievable track. I highly recommend anybody, particularly if you're a car enthusiast, to go to that, or racing enthusiast, rather, to attend that event. But at any rate, having said that, this year the cars, the Le Mans prototypes, did pretty, pretty outstanding. But I will say this. It's the lower GT classes, the GT1, 2, and 3 classes that I like. Now, Porsche did very well there for a while. Uh, and one of the local hometown favorites, which is the Alex Job Racing, the WeatherTech car out of uh, Traveris, Florida, did really, really good. The car, the Porsche in front of him, I think, lost a radiator, if I remember correctly, left a puddle on the ground. The WeatherTech car came up behind him fast, hit the goo on the track, lost control of the car, and went into the... Uh, tires, and that was the end of the WeatherTech car. So unfortunate for them. However, Ford GT took their class. Uh, Ferrari did very well. Some of the Corvettes did not do too well. They kind of went off the road and crashed. Uh, but anyway, we'll get into that in a little bit. Now, Bobby, let's bring everybody up to speed on our on our uh, MGB GT project that they're working on. Okay, so last week when we were on our way to the show, we lost the clutch. Boy, okay. doesn't this sound like uh, sound like a whole bunch of car TV shows? We're gonna yeah. recap from last we're week. We're gonna recap from last week. Yeah. Okay. So what happened was is we we were working on this little project car with a friend of ours, and uh, it's a fun little car. You know, something about driving British cars. British cars are you know they're notorious for issues and breaking down. And you know, I used to joke and say, well, I'm surprised they even got a plane to get off the ground. But in all honesty, it's a relatively simple car. I mean, it's it, for the most part, it's mechanical. Um, but there are some hydraulics involved in it, and it's namely the clutch cylinder, slave cylinder, and, and, and obviously brakes and stuff like that. The quality of the components are not exactly the best in the world, but and, and by far you can't compare them to a German car, because later in the evening we took out one of the 356s, and... Uh, and that was another little story in its own because what we had we had a little issue with that car, but, that's, <laughs> but that was because the battery wouldn't start. So what we did is we ended up pushing it up the hill a little bit, and we and this was what I was explaining to my son. He got an, I said if we had automatics, you couldn't do that. You just basically call triple and you're done. On a stick shift car, whether you lose a clutch, yeah, you know, like we did on the on the MG last week, you just stop at a traffic light or stop at the stop sign, turn the engine off, put it in gear, start it in gear, go. If you synchronize it just right, you can kind of mesh it in second gear, and you can at least get from point A to point B. You may have to stop at every stoplight or intersection, or may even run a light or two, preferably taking side roads, but you can still nonetheless get from point A to point B, even if you lose a clutch, as long as the car is running and driving. Now, having said that, the other car had a dead battery and a weak starter. So, again, here's what you do. You get a little gas and, and fuel, because really what a what an engine is is an air pump. So it just has to, and if you got electricity, another word, electricity, if you got spark and if you got uh, fuel, generally it'll run, okay? Because all you need is... I comp- say that big talks where's doodly squat. You got to have compression. Okay, so once you have that, uh, you know, generally they'll run. Now, because it's an air pump that kind of has like little internal explosions, hence the term internal combustion engine. Now... Oh, yeah, that's we'll get to that one in a second. So anyway, so the 356, what we ended up doing is we ended up push-starting it. Now, my son got to experience what it's like when you don't have a clutch, and obviously I made him drive the car and start it, so he's got a feel for it, So, which is an experience. Which you, this is what parenting is all about. You know, hopefully your, your child takes interest in what you do, or you definitely take interest in what they do, and you share these experiences. So nonetheless, we had to push-start the 356, and after I had a little gas, a little spark, and a couple tiring pushes, attempts at pushing, we finally got that thing started, didn't we, Bobby? That's yeah. what I said. Yeah, right. Oh, so that was that. I don't think so. <laughs> Homie, don't play that. <laughs> so anyway, and then this afternoon, we had to run some errands. I had to get some nuts and bolts. And I'm going to say a big, big, big shout-out to our good friends down there at, at Tri-City Bolt and Screw down off of US-19. Uh, go in there and see Tim and the guys. Um, their number is 727-546-4411. That's 727-546-4411. Now, I go there because they have stainless steel screws or hardware. That's both screws, basically, things like that, washers, uh, spacers. I get a lot of that stuff. been going there for years and years. Um, Brad, who is one of the owners, and Tim's brother, they were, they've been a customer of mine for, geez, 30 years. So uh, if you need little odds and ends for your car, stuff like that, they got super deals, a lot cheaper than Home Depot and most of your hardware stores, and they've got good quality stuff. Plus, they're fairly knowledgeable down there. So I go down there a lot, and I pick up nuts and bolts. And as you're working on these cars, you'll find that when you have uh, 
nice screws, nuts, bolts, and washers. It gives the car kind of a nicer, detailed, finished look. Time for a break? Okay, well, I'll tell you what. You're tuned into Nostalgic Video and Cars, and uh, I think we got a little Beatles coming at you. We do. So uh, you're tuned into Nostalgic Video and Cars, and here's a little rollover Beethoven. Beethoven, gotta hit it again today. And all my tension on the jukebox was a fuse. Heart beating rhythm of my soul is a singing the blues. Rollover Beethoven, a town chickens get the news. Well, now if you feel it like it, get your lover and reel and rock it. Roll it over and move on up just top of the and reel and rock it. Roll it over, roll over, Beethoven, rock it in two by two. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make their bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Largo Road, near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Frustrated looking for car shows? Want the latest in automotive news? How about videos and podcasts? Well, check out Speed Culture, the comprehensive automotive app now available on Google Play and the App Store. Speed Culture brings you motorsports event listings based on your current location. Speed Culture also brings you the latest news feeds, videos, podcasts, and more. Speed Culture, the automotive enthusiast mobile app. For more information, check out speedcultureapp.com and download it today. This is Danny Sullivan, 1985, Indianapolis 500 winner, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and yes, you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Now, where was I going with it? Oh, yeah, we were down to Tri-City Bolton Screw picking up some stuff, and uh, so we left there, and we went over to visit our friends at uh, Meineke on 66th Street. So, by the way, a big shout-out to Carol and John. If you need oil changes, brake jobs, things of that nature, they're very, very, very good people to work with. And uh, they're very, very reasonable, and I think it's a good place to check out and have your car serviced because the shop is extremely clean and very professional. So give them a call. Their number is 727-219-1527. That's 727-219-1527. So anyway, we popped in there just to say hi, check out to what's going on. And uh, a month or two ago, we did a car show there, so we may be doing another one there. Just a little car show, just like a little afternoon thing on a Saturday or something like that. You know, it's an impromptu thing. Show up, bring some, bring your cars, and, you know, we're just going to have sodas and hot dogs and stuff like that. So we might do that every quarter or something like that. But anyway, so we're talking to John and Carol. Now, we're on a way to get back to the to the office and, and prep for the show, right? So we go to start the excursion, my big, giant, black beast. And all of a sudden, it does the usual wah, 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 wah. So what happened was is... We'll go. For a nice long time. 
for a nice long time. Now, we stopped by just because we had to get the battery checked out. The uh, sealed battery went up to Interstate Battery. In the meantime, they decided to have a fire this week up there on 66th Street, right? So what burned up was all his testing equipment, his charging equipment, the whole nine yards. I actually took a picture of it. I might just throw it on Facebook later. But anyway, so their store's burnt. And poor guys that are going, well, I don't really have a lot of help here today. But uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build this place back up. And sure enough, we peeked in. And, I mean, the place flamed up. So we don't know what happened. They didn't really want to discuss it. but uh, So we couldn't get our batteries checked. Nor could we get the battery checked on the, the excursion. So anyway, so we hurried back to the house. Well, because we were, we, were, we were in a parking lot because... I had tropical fish for a while, and then they died. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the other thing, we had, we had to stop by, uh, was it Petco? Is that where we stopped by? Petco. We to, yeah, we had to pick up a little fish there because we have a little pond out in front of the shack, uh, the trailer. And uh, we like to stare at them every once in a while, and something swiped one the other day. So we, want, we didn't want the one fish to be alone, so we had to make sure he had a buddy because you always got to have a buddy, right? Anyway, so then we get home, uh, or get back there. I grab my tools, and I start checking my cables. Because the first thing, if your car doesn't start, common sense says, check your battery. Because it could be terminals. Because in Florida, the heat, I can't explain it, but terminals, it's something you almost have to check on a monthly basis. And clean them, take them off, clean them, put them back on. Sure enough, it fired right up. Right, Bobby? So, um, anyway, let's see what else did we do. Okay, so that took care of the excursion. We got the MGB. I went down to Glenn's MGs. Big shout-out to Glenn down there. And I raided his and pilfered his uh, junk parts bin, because this Saturday over at Philippi Park is a little British car get-together. So we're trying to get this thing dialed in so that we can go and uh, mingle with the rest of the British car guys with something other than a big, ugly, black Ford excursion. We have something that we can kind of blend in with the rest of the crowd there, so we'll have something that's uh, kind of sporty and cool. Of course, an MGB GT, you know, we always talk about uh, the fact that James Bond drove an Aston Martin, well, if Miss Moneypenny had a cool car, it would be an MGB GT. And hence, the name of this car from the previous owner for a very, very long time was Miss Moneypenny. So, uh, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Got a little classical music for you. This is a preference of our, our guests coming on in a few minutes. So stick around. You're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with our very special guest for the afternoon.
It starts in the afternoon, moves through the long summer twilight into a night filled with whirling lights. It reaches halfway at dawn. Finally, after a long morning, the afternoon comes round once more, and the full day's cycle is complete. It is the great race whose name joins time with place, the 24 hours of Le Mans. To race here is to be drawn into a maelstrom of speed, spiraling around the track as if geared invisibly to the finish line clock. It is a world of calculation and of nerve, of careful engineering, and moments when everything goes wrong. Through the decades, each Le Mans has been won in a different way. Canetti drove all but 20 minutes. Hill and Jeanemier waited patiently for others to break. Voigt and Gurney took their big Ford and crushed the opposition, while Porsches dominated the 80s through sheer weight of numbers. Some years the race is won on the drawing board, others by team tactics, sometimes by a stroke of last-minute luck. And once it came to this, sheer desperation. What shape will the race take this year? One team's journey to victory is about to begin. A journey from day to night and back. From being one of many to being the one, the winner of the 24 hours of Le Mans. This is Brian Redman, retired racing driver, nine times road racing champions, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Thank you, Brian Redman. It's time to introduce our special guest for the evening who has raced at Le Mans, I might add, and racetracks all around the world. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening the return of the legendary racer and commentator Sam Posey. Sam, are you there? I am here, yes. How nice the uh, setup you've done up there. Hearing the, uh, what we call a tease or the opening uh, from a couple of years ago was, was really got me in the mood. Super, super. So, since we're talking about Le Mans, we just came off this weekend. What'd you think? Well, I, you know, I go down to Charlotte where we take the, the international feed into there, and I have some pieces written before we get there that are edited while the, uh, the race is in its early stages. But then it gets really exciting because things happen on the track. I then turn to my editor, what have you got for pictures for this? I then type something out. He puts it, puts the pictures to the words, and we have a record um, of that's just under 20 minutes from the incident on the track to the verbal um, you know, the piece. And we're very proud of that. Interesting. So what did you think of the final outcome for Toyota and Porsche? I'm not sure. Uh, I, you know, I just don't know. I mean, um, I, I, I don't think I've ever been involved with a race where the loss was as bitter as this. Uh, and it's somehow unfair, you know. It just there's, no, there's nobody up there that decides how races should come out. But you, you sort of think there should be so that they could straighten this damn thing out, you know. Because it's, it's such a blow. Um, Porsche needs it like a hole in the head, and <laughs> Toyota needs it so desperately, and they've, they've put so much into it over the years. They're so sporting and uh, eager, and they've got such great drivers, and I just cried, you know. I mean, I just, uh, I think everybody did. It, it was really a blow. For us, it was very tense, because the uh, the race ends at 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, and uh, we go off the air at 9.30. So at 9.01, we knew that we had to change the, basically the whole closing and and, and get, leave enough time for the pictures to be put in and the music. That meant I had about 10 minutes, we counted about, to write a new closing. There are 150 words. And I somehow did it, and I'm very proud of that. Excellent. Now, if people want to find out about some of the other stuff that you do, because you you still do some writing from time to time, don't you? For whom? Writing. I mean, you write for you, some. Don't you write some articles and public for some publications out there, racing publications? Oh yes, yes, yes. I thought you named one. No. Um, yes, um, Road and Track. Uh, I I was first on the masthead of Road and Track in the late 1950s. I've been there ever since. Oh really? That long? I didn't know that. 
And now I have a book out called Where the Driver Meets the Road. And um, it's selling brilliantly, and it's a collection of my road and track articles primarily, but there's a lot of new stuff in there, too. I recommend it, obviously, highly. And um, I, I hope you enjoy it if you get a chance to read it. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you can send me a copy of it. I'd love to love to have that and then uh, read on through that. So basically, what are some of the articles about? Are they all racing, or are they about cars and stuff and personalities as well? Personalities, definitely. Um, Brian Redman, who just promoted the show, uh, is a dear friend, and uh, I, I promote him whenever I get an opportunity. He also has written a book. David Hobbs has written a book. So sort of three of us who generally share um, a kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, but um, have all written books recently. Mine is the best. Um, no no need to be modest there. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it covers all sorts of things from Mark Donahue and how and why he got killed and um, Peter Revson. And, and, but then it, it just has a section where we go to the River Rouge plant in Ford's and and there's a section on how to write teases um, and how to how to work make very few words work and make them powerful. So there's that too. And I don't know. It's just um, you catch me at a moment where I'm very proud of the things I've done. I should being quite immodest here. No, that's very very good. Matter of fact, I was going to ask you because in 1975, I believe. You and Brian Redman drove the BMW, and didn't you win Sebring in 1975? Yeah. Okay. Now, did you, that car, that particular BMW, the CSL, did you race that car in Europe as well, at Le Mans, or did you race that just here in the United States? I raced a similar car for Harold Gross, G-R-O-H-S. And Harold was quite a character. He said, Sam, you know, my business. And I said, no, I really don't, Harold. Well, it's whorehouses, he said. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I mean, any time you, you think you're inclined that way, I've got the best girls, and they'll do anything. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, I'm married. I don't talk to me like this. Take us through the preparation um, and, the, and, and, let's say, a couple laps at Sebring. So let's just, or excuse me, not Sebring, Le Mans. So let's just go to 1975. Let's do a flashback. And you're in the BMW, and you're there a couple of days ahead of time, and you're doing the testing. Take us through the, give, the, give our listeners what you, the driver, and some of the team people had to go through to get ready for that event. That's a good question. Um, it starts the previous Sunday uh, with uh, tech inspection which is very stylistic and old-fashioned, down by the cathedral uh, in the town square. And uh, then, then there are a couple of days off, and then there's practice. And in practice, you don't get much practice for this race. You can't rent the track, for example. Um, and uh, compared to an Indianapolis driver, a Le Mans driver has uh, uh, virtually no practice at all, really, because you have three guys to one car, and many of those drivers... Even some starting the race um, have only um, done two or three laps. It's eight miles around, so it takes a while. Um, so then we'll practice happens, and it goes from about five or six in the evening till midnight. Um, so you can get adjusted to the night and get your lights pointed in the right way, all that kind of thing. And uh, then, then there's a qualifying day. And then there's a day off, and that day off is the one before the race. And you wonder what you're going to do with yourself, because, I don't know, it seems it's a little weird to drive off and look at a castle um, with a Le Mans 20 hours away. On the other hand, if you sit around and stew, that's not going to get it done either. So I, it's, um, it's an interesting proposition. Um, I, of course, loved it, because I got to go down to Alexander Calder's uh, studio. He, he was a great artist, of course, and um, see what he was up to. He had just died, and all his, his studio sculptures and everything were still there with grass growing up around them. It was wonderful. Well, now, for our listeners, you're actually an architect as well as a sculptor. That's one of the things that you do on the side. That's one of your hobbies, right? Well, everything is a hobby for me. <laughs> Okay, everything's a hobby for you. 
Uh, well, now, wait a minute. Racing, you took real serious, though, right? I uh, Not to be uh, pedantic about it, I take everything seriously. Okay. Right. Um, because I, I have, I guess, the, the traditional fear of failure. You know, I, I take undertake something, I want it to come out well. And right now I'm in the midst of a real tough, my toughest ever assignment, which is I'm doing figure painting. Mm-hmm. I've always been an artist, but landscapes mostly. Now I've got two girls who come in twice a week, and uh, I'm trying to learn how to paint them with no clothes on. and It's, it's very exciting, but the, the, the thrill of the nude wears off a little bit. And it doesn't really wear off, but it's joined by the knowledge you have of figure painting and what you're going to do to make it work. Okay. Um... Now, I don't really know much about that, so I really don't know what kind of questions to ask. And I mean, you kind of coached me along here, but let's jump back to the race now. Okay, so the day before the race, the day before the 24-hour, you have that whole day off. Does the anticipation, did the the tensity, does that, how do you deal with that? You, you really can't uh, you get on top of it, you know. I mean, you're doing something, you're having a lunch at, if it's a cafe or something, your mind is on the track. Um, you're not there at the cafe at all mentally. Um, so that's inescapable. What's the camaraderie like with other teams? So let's just say, for example, you're at BMW, and obviously there was Ferrari, and there was Porsche, and there was you know other companies that were in there, other manufacturers as well. What what? How do do the teams kind of? Let's say, like, on that day, that day before the race, do you kind of socialize? Does everybody just stay with their own their own team? Uh, do you split up? I mean, so what, do you, what transpires? You stay with your own team. Okay. Because of the scheduling, number one, it makes it very impractical to try to hook up with somebody and go do something. Okay. But mostly you want to concentrate on the, on the race, and um, that means you don't want uh, the enemy anywhere nearby. Ah, the enemy. Okay, so they're all perceived as the enemy. Okay. The day of the race, you're getting ready. Take us through that that time period. So you get up in the morning, then what? Get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you say, I wonder if I'll ever be brushing my teeth again. Oh, wow. It's a a formidable thing. You leave maybe a little cottage we had one year with a steel gate. You close the gate behind you and you realize you've given up the place you sleep and place you eat and everything, and you're now going into the great wide world of Le Mans. And the detention is not terribly great until near the start. And, you know, Le Mans, it's not so bad as it used to be when we ran across the track to, to jump in the cars and drive away. Today it's a rolling start, and... This year it was raining, so they went around did nine laps or something behind the pace car. So it, it lacks that drama um, and tension that it had. Um, I regret that. I think it's something missing. But, I mean, it's done in the interest of safety, so what can you say? Okay, so in 1975 they still had a Le Mans start there then? No, I was in the last one in 1966. Oh, 1966. Last guy to do the Le Mans star. So what was that like? You're standing here on the other side. Does it matter how fast you run over there and get in your car? Or oh, yes, it matters a it lot. Does. Okay. But what's even more important is how quickly you can get in the car. Because and, let's say a GT40 Ford, you know, you've got the doors that open into the roof. Um, you've got a tight cockpit. Somehow you have to wriggle down into it uh, and not foul up the belts, which you're probably sitting on top of. Um, and, then, and then you've got to get the car going. So it can be miserable. You know, Dan Gurney had qualified on the pole um, in 66, I think it was. And um, he ran across very fast, but he couldn't get the belts done up. So after a while, cars were streaming by him, of course. He said, damn it, to hell with it, I'm going to just start racing. So off he went, no belt. Really? And uh, he uh, he finally managed to, by the steering with his knees, 
uh, he denies she had the belts on. Wow, interesting story. Now, that you probably watched a lot of those those Le Mans starts, and was there ever a situation where a driver was really close to getting hit by another car before he actually got to his car? I'm sorry, I don't quite understand the question. In other words, let's say you're running across the, the track there because you're on the opposite side of the track and your car's sitting oh, over yeah. there on the grid. So, in other words, when you ran across, is there, was there ever the, the, the chance that uh, somebody could get, somebody got to the car first and somebody pulled out that somebody may have accidentally or come that, close that, to hitting a driver? That's good thinking. Um, it, it just it happens that it doesn't happen. It happens that it doesn't Even happen. Even a slow walk, as Jackie Yates did in 69, uh, um, it beats a... A guy getting into the car and getting it started. Okay. That's quite time consuming. Okay. And the, the straightaway is fairly narrow. The walk is, or the run is not very long. Okay. Interesting. All right. So now you're sitting on the grid and the race is about to start. What's the anticipation like? Well, if you're the number one driver, um, it's a source of great pride, and you have your armband, which signals and signifies your position as the number one driver, the platinum driver, the second driver is the silver, and the third is the bronze. But if you're the platinum guy, there's a lot of pride standing around your car. The Tropicana girls go by wearing almost no clothes at all. That's very distracting. And um, then... You get in the car and nowadays, and it's not really that bad. Um, it's nothing as t- difficult as Indy, for example, or a Formula One race. Because, I mean, if you muff, muff the start at Le Mans, it's no big deal. You know, you'll catch up with 24 hours to go. Um, I mean, you'd rather not muff it, but it's not going to be anything anybody remembers down later on. Um, but... Of course, the main thing is not to get screwed up in traffic, and the traffic is very dense. Um, obviously, 55 cars out there, even if the track is long, um, they still, on the first laps before they begin to string out, there are these clumps of cars going very, very fast. It was quite impressive this year how many cars they had going really fast. It was a great race from that standpoint. Do you think that there's, um, like, the LMP cars, do you think there's too many classes? Four classes. Four classes. Okay. So, now, your thought about, like, the LMP cars, there's LMP 1 and 2, do you think they should be lumped together? No, I don't. Um, They have two good fields, and if you lump them together, you can take all the... Zip out of the LMP2 okay. cars, um, which would really be a shame. I mean, there's some cars in the race that are three or four years old. I mean, that's unheard of in top line racing, but um, it works here because um, the it isn't top line racing. Um, I mean, there's some teams that take it seriously, trying to sort of steal an advantage over the others in terms of PR and so forth. But um, no, I think. Uh, Keep the one guys up front and let the two guys have a uh, their own sporting duel, which, I mean, I mean, sounds like I'm sort of denigrating it, but I'm not. I mean, I have enormous respect for those guys, but I, in the giant picture of things, you can. It's tough enough keeping track of three cars, three drivers per car, but to double the number of cars out there and the number of drivers... Then you've got 600 drivers, and um, that's a little bit much. Okay. Now, back in your day, when you were racing, let's say when you started in the early, when I say back in your day, and I don't, and I mean that because I'm a fan of the older old racing, you know, and the way they used to do it. The they had when I said, and and when I let me go back to when I said too many classes. It's just, it seems like in the old days you had small bore cars, you had more more classes but a smaller field, where today we have less classes and a larger field. Is that a fair perception that I have? I don't know that it isn't, um, but I have a feeling that in the old days, as we're calling them, okay. um, there really were only two classes, an under-two-liter that went for um, the index of performance, and then the rest of the cars, which were all big engine. 
trying for the overall. Well, then maybe I didn't phrase that right. It just seems like there was a larger, more of a a whole bunch of different style of cars, kinds of cars, different comp- competitive. Where today it's just, in other words, there was just a, different brands. Where today it's just pretty much narrowed down to Ford, Chevy, Ferrari, maybe an Aston Martin, maybe a Lamborghini, Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, which is the same company basically. Uh, and of course, now this year we had Toyota, and Nissan, which I don't think really were heavyweights up until this year anyway, right? So share your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about the numbers. Uh, you, you raise a really good question. I'm embarrassed not to be able to answer it crisply. Um, I just have the feeling that um, in the quote-unquote old days um, that there were a lot of cars in one class, and, and that was pretty much it except for the small cars which um, had this index of performance um, thing, which the French made a big deal out of because they had cars that were suited to it. Okay. Interesting. What about the driver perspective today versus, you know, when you were racing? It's very different because when we raced, we had two drivers per car. Now they have three. And the dynamics of that change are endless. Um, For one thing, um, you're more apt to be a team with three than one and two because there you're looking across at the your other driver and one of the two of you is going to be the fastest and the other one is going to be the slowest. Now with three, it blurs a little bit. People get fewer laps. Um, it's not considered a good form to thrash the car around. You're disappointing two people and not just one if you wreck it or spoil it in some way. And just the whole thing, um, uh, Mark Weber went from Formula One to um, sports cars last year, and when he was asked what the biggest difference was, he said we have a team atmosphere instead of a uh, an individual atmosphere. Okay. Um, obviously, you follow formula, you follow all forms of racing, but let's just jump to Formula One, for example. When you've got uh, a team like, um, let's say, Force India, or you've got Red Bull, and I'm not exactly sure what took place at Le Mans or at, uh, at Monte Carlo a couple, three, four weeks ago, but they, I think they had a little pro- miscommunication in the pits there. But they, and and I will say that in, over the years, there's been a number of drivers. What are your thoughts on when a when a race team tells their drive, even though let's say the the they're 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 big, they're big showman, so to speak, is... I'll, I'll, I'll just use Michael Schumacher. Michael Schumacher was behind, I think it was Alonzo a few years ago, many, many years ago in one of the races. And basically, they wired into Alonzo and told him to back off and let Michael win. Now, I understand it's for points and stuff like that, but what are your thoughts on that? Is that fair? And it's kind of like what, what happened in 1966 when the Ford 123 um, scenario took place, when Shelby was technically winning, apparently, and then they told uh, Ken Miles to hold back and let Ford take take the win. Well, of course, there it was strictly a business decision. Um, okay. Although nobody liked 10 miles very much. So that probably weighed against him. But the business was the headlines Monday morning. Would it say 10 miles completes trial or try something, you know, a championship? Or would it read Ford wins Le Mans? And that's the one they were looking for. Right. Okay. So that's how that came about. Um, what was the question? Okay, and the other one is like, for example, when they have when when the teams pick a driver, you know, even though and it's and, and obviously it's it seems like it's a little bit political, but for example, when and I'm just going to use that as an example because that's the one that sticks in my mind, and I can't remember which race it was, but when Michael Schumacher was actually trailing behind Alonso, I think it was Alonso, his teammate back when they were racing Ferraris oh, together. Massa. Is that who it was? Massa, yes. Okay, and they told him to hold back and let. Uh, um, uh, Michael take the win, and so what's your thoughts on that kind of? St- well, I think everybody gets into this uh, with their eyes wide open, and um, Massa didn't like it, and I don't blame him. But in the contracts, it says there's a number one driver on our Ferrari team here, and it's Michael Schumacher, and uh, we're going to do everything we can to advance his uh, standing uh, in the championship. And if it's early in the season. People are particularly offended. They say, oh, there's so much racing left to go. Well, not really. If you're involved, 
you know that every point won or lost could be the crucial one at the end of the year. And uh, I have no trouble with the um, with the team orders at all. They they the teams put up billions of dollars. They build the cars. They hire the drivers. And step back, boys, um, until there's a clear situation where um, the team can gain an, an advantage by having the drivers swap positions. Okay. I mean, everybody knows who won the race. Right. And, uh, so it, it's just a chance for people who like to get up on a pedestal and scream to do it. <laughs> we got a couple minutes left. Um your favorite driver that you raced against and you raced with back in well, the day? Brian Redman was the uh, guy that won Sebring for me, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I drove two or three other races with him, always coming out right in front. Um, Riverside, Six Hour, and uh, Elkhart Lake, and so forth. Um, I love Brian. I love him as a guy. and uh, I think he's just superb. And he still races in these vintage car races. And he's still prodigiously fast. Um, he's a wonderful man and a great racer. My friend David Hobbs, of course, is a great, both of those things. Uh, and uh, we work together so often in television. Brian has never done television, but David and I have done a great deal of it. Um, and I, we share so much uh, that, that uh, it's, it's just a pleasure when I get to see him and get to do something with him. Excellent. Now we got a, about less than thirty seconds left here, Sam. If somebody, if if they want to get a hold of your book, how do they go about getting your book, real quick? Oh, just um, bookstore uh, internet. Okay, and the title of the book again? Where the driver meets the road. Where the driver meets the road. All right, Sam. I want to thank you very much for coming out here and hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Union Cars. I want to thank my special guest again, Sam Posey. Don't forget to get a hold of his book, Where the Driver Meets the Road. Sam, you take care. I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Union Cars. Be sure and check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. If you missed any of our past shows, they are podcasted at Nostalgic Union Cars on our website. Don't forget, if you want to find out where all the car shows are, check out Speed Culture, the enthusiast mobile app. And this weekend, a little British car show over at Safety Harbor. Also, this weekend, SAC, which is a Shelby meet up in mid-Ohio, and Barrett-Jackson up at Mohegan in the beautiful state of Connecticut. Everyone, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Singing to his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. In your eyes.